Welcome to the Filling the Pearl podcast. I'm Greg Ashman, and with me for this episode is Jenny Donovan, Chief Executive Officer of the new Australian Education Research Organisation. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you, Greg. Gosh, you're bursting with energy. I'll, I'll try and keep up. Well, I'm drinking coffee. That's that's how I do it. That's my secret. Oh, see, I've only got tea on this side. That was my mistake. Two long blacks in one uh, one mug. That's <laughs> the, that's the strategy. Um, it's actually my birthday today as well, so um, I will be. Oh, yeah, happy yeah. birthday! Yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, I, it's, uh, yeah, I've gone all out. I've had two long backs because of my birthday, but no. Um, so, uh, without further ado, um, thank you for coming on the podcast. We're going to explore some of the many uh, things that you've been involved with um, in Australian education during the course of this podcast. So, people that don't feel like they know you very well probably will by the end of the um, podcast. So, I'm not going to do a really expansive introduction. Um, but you started out as a teacher, and I'm always interested um, in why and how people got into teaching. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, my mother was a primary school teacher, so the only thing I really knew at school was I wasn't going to be a teacher. Um, <laughs> and I didn't start out. I went to uni doing arts law, thinking um, I could turn that into some sort of overseas posting career glamour thing somewhere and before the end of the first year I think I realized um, a, a big driver for me is I need to feel like what I'm doing is worthwhile and it didn't feel worthwhile it didn't feel like it was going to meet that need um, and I desperately wanted to be able to move out of home I figured the the fastest route to getting a job would be teaching and I could keep doing history which I loved so I shifted across. I didn't tell my parents for about two years. And when I did, they were horrified. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, where was that? Would that have been Sydney? Yes, I went to Macquarie Uni to do my um, Bachelor of Arts and Diploma of Education. Excellent. So yeah. uh, uh, did you have all the whole like sort of Piaget and theory and all that sort of stuff? Or is that what was that? What, what was the balance of things like when you studied? Look. I've thought about this a lot because of my reflection on the current state of initial teacher education. There, there was a lot of sociology in the teaching, in the education course load, but uh, Macquarie wasn't unusual, I don't think, in also having a huge focus on practicum experience right from the beginning. So you didn't kind of wait until you'd finished three years and then you got thrown into a classroom. You, you moved into a classroom pretty much from day one in different kind of capacities. And I think um, the fact that the coursework might've been a little overloaded with theory and underdone in terms of the, the toolkit you need as a beginning teacher was probably uh, balanced because we got to be in classrooms. We got to be working with experienced professionals and kind of learning tricks of the trade from observation and being given the opportunity to, you know, test ourselves on human student guinea pigs. Um, I think when, when I came back to think about teacher education in one of my other incarnations, which we'll probably get to, uh, I, I don't think the practicum, the guarantee of the practicum experience is as intense as what I experienced anymore. Um, and that was certainly one of the things that we focused on as being an area for attention when I was working on the National Partnership for Improving Teaching Quality decade ago oh so I, I okay so um what can you tell me a little bit about that 
because that's not one of the things I've got in my notes, the National no, Partnership for Improving Teaching Quality. So I'll, quite be, I'll be quite interested to learn about that. Um, so lots of bouncing around, obviously, and, and we may or may not come back to it, but yeah. that was uh, during a period when I was working in the New South Wales Department of Education and uh, the particular division I was working in had responsibility for Commonwealth state relations. Um, this was the period kind of pre the first round of Gonski funding when we were looking at different ways for the Commonwealth to distribute funding to the states and territories to support um, reform in education. Yeah. And there were a few national partnerships at the time. There was one focused on low SES students. There was uh, a, a, a early childhood education one, which is still kind of limping along in a, a different format. And the big one, well, from my point of view, because it was the one that was my baby, was improving teaching quality. And it was co-written uh, by me with um, the Commonwealth uh, officers from the Commonwealth Treasury and PMNC. So it was really a central agency's kind of driven initiative and, and me as the lead person from New South Wales as the jurisdiction that put its hand up to say we want to help write this one and the interesting thing about that one was it was an evidence-based case for a national partnership we we did a huge piece of work investigating what was the evidence base for effective teaching and improving teaching practice um, so that we could uh, really be quite directive with what the national partnership funding could do some of the other national partnerships were very open. They just sort of said, well, you know, if you're a low SES school and you meet this definition, you should get a bucket of money. Yeah. Whereas improving teaching quality said, let's conceive of teachers as having a kind of typical lifespan. You know, we, we need to look at recruiting them into teaching. We need to look at the way they're trained. We need to look at the way they're then employed by jurisdictions or sectors. We need to look at their development as teachers um, and we need to look at improving them um, or developing them potentially as leaders as well. So if yep. we take this kind of life cycle view, there are all these intervention points available to us as systems. Um, and we then kind of drill down into, well, what are the points where dollars might usefully be directed and how would we prefer to see them spent based on this evidence base that we have? So initial teacher education was part of that. Yep. And we looked at what the universities were doing and could be doing. And we looked at uh, some of the things with the most robust evidence base in terms of developing good teachers and yep. a good quality practicum experience was one of those things. So we, we established a kind of minimum period and duration and different expectations of supervision of practicum and assessment of practicum success because, you know, uh, I suspect it still happens. People can go through and be pretty dramatically unsuccessful and still somehow emerge as a graduate teacher. Yeah, um, well, so, this, yeah. Know, some yeah. of the things we've been thinking about for a long time. <laughs> yeah, because obviously Alan Tudge, our federal minister, has now decided that he wants to return to this issue of initial teacher education. Yes. So hopefully he'll be looking at the ed evidence base um, as such that it is again. And hopefully uh, some of the more effective practices will get in there. Um, so how did you get from the, so obviously you've got uh, your Dr. Jenny Donovan. So you did a, um, a research degree. Am I right in thinking that that was in history? Yes. 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 I, I've never been um, 
I've never been terribly calculated in terms of what is the most career enhancing thing to do next. And, and the study that I've done, I did a master's as well, that um, was a, an honours master's, so research there as well. Um, none of them have been career enhancing moves. <laughs> They've been for interest because, you know, I don't know about you. Well, I do know about you. you I don't know where you get your energy from. Um, I need something that isn't work that I can also turn my mind to, that I yeah. can be thinking about. And, um, you know, four kids has been useful from that perspective. But <laughs> And, in fact, the, the PhD finally got concluded in a period that I was on maternity leave. So having kids helped <laughs> get the, so, the thesis done as well. So what was the little area, the tiny little area of physics, of um, history that you that you blew up into a into a PhD study. It ended up being Australian history, which yeah. I would have been surprised at the outset if I thought I would settle on on a, an Australian history topic because you know my passions were ancient history and all yeah. sorts of other things, European focused by and large. Um, it was Australian history because in the course of some other work I'd been doing, I came across a cache of primary material in the Mitchell Reading Room in the State Library um, that was a collection of materials from a women's intellectual group from the turn of the century, the 1890s. And this group had been formed as a kind of literary society, where, you know, a version of a book club, I suppose. Um, but it had uh, you know, some real movers and shakers in terms of emerging feminism at the yeah. time and it struck me that what was happening here was they were using this this uh, literary society to kind of practice having public personas practice politics and the the tactics and and strategies and processes of being political players and I found them and they were fascinating and wonderful and then I found dozens of others this is kind of the you know women's history is often described as being silenced and and um, lost and he was an example of this dynamic kind of culture that I didn't know anything about and I've been teaching Australian history for years so um, it was all novel and um, interesting obviously and hilarious quite often because they were so hard on themselves they'd set up these societies and they wouldn't just come together and you know drink chardonnay and talk about the book that they'd read they'd come together and they'd take minutes and they would you know publicly ridicule the person who hadn't done their homework or stood up to speak and didn't speak in an articulate way and and more than anything you know while it was amusing sometimes it was more evidence to me that they're using this for another purpose. They're, they're carving out this public space to operate in and to practice becoming really um, good tacticians in a political way. And many of these people then went on to lead suffrage movements and to be political and to be activists and so on. So As they women, women got the vote in Australia actually relatively early compared to some other states. Is, is that right? Only beaten by New Zealand. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So, yeah. so that was this is the context of this crucible of this intellectual movement. Wow, that's fascinating. Okay, yeah. we probably ought to return to education. Yeah, so, <laughs> so how did you get from the classroom into sort of doing this work in department? What was the what was the route for you there? 
Uh, I was given the opportunity to do a really amazing professional development program. Um, it was intensively resourced program around language and literacy. It was run by the then Metropolitan West Region in Sydney and, uh, and um, designed by some fabulous uh, education academics and um, public servants, people in the New South Wales Department at the time. Um, it required me to go off-site from the school for an afternoon a week for six or ten weeks or something. So it was really quite a big investment that the school made in my participation in this thing. Um, and it, it did two things. One was it really made me rethink the way I taught, the way I um, operated as a teacher. It, it made me kind of spin my view of myself as a teacher, as somebody who's delivering interesting content to students um, and encouraging them to love it and um, know about stuff they didn't know before, um, to being really much more focused on their learning and that being the really critical thing. And how did I know that their learning was good enough? And what was I doing about the fact that their writing wasn't, you know, well-structured or, or clear or articulate, you know, I was marking things saying expression needs attention I wasn't telling them how to fix their sentences yeah. it never occurred to me that I could or I should because that wasn't in my curriculum that yeah. wasn't what the English curriculum said I needed to do it certainly wasn't what as a history teacher I was told I needed to do and what this program exposed me to was the sense that no no you're the teacher you're responsible for the learning outcomes that they have and it isn't just about being you know enjoying a good story about ancient mythology it's actually about being able to express what they've learned um, via their um, their speaking or their writing particularly their writing because increasingly you know writing gets more complex as they move through high school um, and I realized nobody in the school was taking responsibility for their writing um, yeah or or other aspects of literacy and that that mattered as a teacher I should feel responsible for that so yeah. Um, it, it had that effect. The other thing it did was expose me to a group of people who, uh, from within the department, who later went on to begin the process of creating um, a new statewide assessment. You know, New South Wales was quite early to the, the statewide assessments of literacy um, that ultimately morphed into what's now NAPLAN. Yeah. Um, but they'd only done it for primary school students. And because this whole um, professional learning exercise was focused on high school students, um, the kind of spin-off was we, we should have an assessment of students on entry to high school so that we can identify early what are the literacy needs that they have so that the teachers can then use a program like this one or one that we might adapt for the purpose to address their needs early um, and not, you know, spend the first six months, year, two years, four years not realising they don't know how to read very well or they yeah. can't write or they don't know what a sentence is. Um, so when that effort began, they came back to me and said, would you be interested in coming out of school for a little while and, and working on creating this assessment, which was called ELLA, English Language and Learning Assessment. Um, and my principal said, you can go for a little while. And my head of department said, 
oh, don't go, you'll hate it. You're, yeah. <laughs> you're meant to be in the classroom. Yeah. Um, and, of course, I went and I never returned to the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> but so, I didn't leave entirely. I kept I kept teaching a, a three-unit class for um, one morning a week for a year <laughs> just because <laughs> there was no one else to step in. And you it got made in, the transition easier. And you got involved in you – know, so you took that assessment forward because you – the. So my school for many years, the school I'm in now, we ran the ICAS assessments and you were involved oh, yeah. in uh, the ESS, is it the ESS, that, uh, New South Wales yeah, University? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Education Assessment Australia. Was, yeah. Yes, it was one of those little um, not-for-profits attached to the University yeah. of New South Wales. Yeah. So, and that was why I was um, asked if I'd, I'd be interested in moving into that role for a while because I'd had the experience in the statewide assessment um, and everything that went with it. Um, and at the time, my my manager in the department said, look, I'll give you leave without pay to go and do a contract with them because I think it'll be a great opportunity to, you know, learn more about a different mode of operation. And um, sure enough, I did. I got to join that organisation at a period when it was going through a dramatic restructure. And so I got to preside over, you know, the halving of a workforce and oh. it was all really hard going for a while. And the company was totally in the red. And um, so I, I got to learn about business too and you know public servants spend taxpayer money but you know not not many of us public servants actually do that in a very direct way going into a not-for-profit like that which is really meant to be revenue raising for the university mm. um, was a really quick learn a steep learning curve about how uh, you know the economics of a business really work and and we turned it around it was in the yeah. back within 12 months but ICAS was interesting because it uh, it's designed for a different purpose of course to the statewide assessments yeah. it, it always badged itself as an assessment and a competition yeah um, and the you know the logo of the university was very important the the students who did the assessments and won the competition and got the medals at the end of each session um, cared passionately about yeah. the competitiveness of it and the recognition of their academic achievement. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, each year we'd have big ceremonies all around the country to award the medals to these kids who'd gone through the process and emerged, you know, as that that one person who did better than everybody else who participated and there were thousands and thousands of participants um, and be quite unapologetic about awarding the excellence they demonstrated. You know, you don't hesitate to award excellence on a sporting field. Why would you hesitate to award excellence in academic endeavour? It was a, you know, a, a wonderful kind of event every year to read out the names of all these shiny happy children and see their <laughs> proud parents in the audience <laughs> absolutely now when you were talking about ella you were saying something like um there wasn't an assessment at secondary school so we introduced this assessment so that people had the information about whether kids could read they could write they could intervene uh, one of the criticisms leveled against the successor to ella and the other state assessments naplan is that we've had naplan for 10 years but it hasn't improved outcomes in fact measured by NAPLAN, if anything, they've slightly declined. So 
what's your you know what's your thoughts on that how come naplan hasn't improved um measurably significantly substantially um outcomes in 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 reading uh, writing and maths um the the first thing i want to say and make yeah. clear is i support full cohort statewide assessment of literacy and numeracy yeah. So while I might have views about how that plan could be improved, I would yeah. never be somebody who would be saying, oh, well, it's hopeless, get rid of it. Um, Absolutely. And I'd be with you on that. Up. Yeah, critically. Like I would have views on how we could improve it. I think we've all got views yeah. on how we could improve it. Yeah. But I, I, I absolutely think you need something like that. That's my yeah. that's where I'm and, coming and from with the question. And I would say that anyway, because yeah. obviously I am someone who thinks that assessment is valuable and important yeah. and, and can change outcomes for students. I think the difference, um, you know, we, we tried really hard to preserve what was good about the New South Wales assessments when we made the transition to a national assessment, um, but we didn't win all the battles. There was quite uh, an appetite for national consistency. And sometimes yeah. that does mean making concessions to people who are not where you might be. Um, yeah. Ella succeeded and, and we did see improvement in a range of areas, and I'll go into one in particular, um, because we were very closely aligned to curriculum. So when the, NAP, the Ella reports went out, and they had way more detail, by the way, than NAPLAN reports have, yeah. they went accompanied uh, they went in school packages with curriculum links resources, we called them. So here are the LR items. Here's where they correspond to the syllabus and curriculum documents that you're working with. And here are a range of strategies that you can use in the classroom to address your students if they have this kind of difficulty or weakness or whatever. Yeah. Now, that has never been offered, uh, certainly not as systematically yeah. with plan as as we did that was part of the deal for us this wasn't just about getting a set of numbers mm. this was about providing back inf information for teachers to support their teaching to give them a bit of direction the other thing about Ella was any student who fell beneath a minimum threshold the equivalent of the national minimum standard in that plan had to have a mandatory additional assessment done by a support teacher with training in supporting uh, students with learning difficulties. So you didn't just fall below a minimum standard and that was it, everybody threw up their hands and thought, oh gosh, what are we going to do? Yeah. Somebody yeah. who knew what to do came in, did further assessments, then judged whether or not another intervention was needed and what it should look like and implemented it. There was follow-up right to the end for those students. The other thing we had was um, we made optional uh, a and test in year eight. So everybody had to do the year seven test after the first year. Um, we offered a test for year eight students, um, for anyone who wanted to participate. And from the very first year, we had 95% of schools opting in for all of their students to participate in a year eight test. So you didn't get a, a big gap between information uh, about the students that, that exists currently with the way NAPLAN's distributed. And it, it just was always amazing to us that for all, you know, there, there remained always an undercurrent of um, you know, resistance to testing and whether testing's bad or creates anxiety for kids or whatever. But the schools were hungry for the insights that they could gain from these assessments. Yeah. Um, and, and nobody was forcing them. There were no 
regional directors at the time saying, you must stop in, we will be mean to you, principal, if you don't do it. They just did because they valued the insight. And then the, the final thing that I'll tell you about is we assessed writing with Ella. Yeah. Um, and unlike NAPLAN, we assessed multiple genres. So we didn't just assess a literary or a persuasive text and, you know, it might be one one year, one the next. Yeah. Every year yeah. We, possessed, we assessed two tasks, one literary, one non-literary, and they could be different kinds of tasks. The non-literary could be a report or a recount or a, a persuasive or whatever. You know, it wasn't predictable and it gave us better insight into a student's relative strengths in literary versus non-literary, which is quite an interesting insight to have, um, especially in high school when you're, you know, yeah. the science teacher and you don't really care if they can write a story or not. Um, you do really care if they know how to write an explanation or a report. Um, so it made it more useful for teachers. And the other thing we did with it was offer schools the chance to participate in professional learning so that they could mark their own students' writing. Most yeah. of the, the assessments came to a big marking centre and every year my job was to train all of these teachers so that they knew how to apply the rubric and blah, blah, blah. But for, uh, I think, 100 schools every year, they were given the option to have that training come to them for their entire staff. They could mark their own students. We'd double mark it, of course, to make sure it was all done well. But they learned about assessing writing because of that PL, which meant they understood better how to teach writing, which meant, in terms of the data, the students' writing performance in those schools improved out of proportion to the improvement you might have expected to see based on the full cohort data and that improvement was sustained in those schools over years so um, you know the the kids from year seven to eight improved but they improved more than we would have expected and the next year um, of year seven students did better than the previous cohort of year seven students so it was a really successful professional learning opportunity that I think improved the quality of teaching. It so, gave them insight they didn't have. So it's kind of more joined up, more comprehensive. And that that gives really, if you're a school and you've got NAPLAN results and you're worried about them, that gives some sort of insights as to the kind of steps you could put in place to um, hmm. flesh that out a bit and build it into a, a continuous improvement approach. Um, that's interesting. Thanks for that. Now, well, I want to move on, though, to um, the New South Wales Centre for Education, Statistics and Evaluation. Bit of a mouthful there. Cease, do we call it cease? Cheese? Well, Cease. No, Cease. Because my, my manager at the time comes from New York. And so she, you've got to hear it with the American accent. Yeah. It Cease rhymes with. I don't know, sleazy. <laughs> um, okay. But people have tried all sorts of things. We had someone pronounce it Chese. <laughs> Chese, Chese. Yes. Okay, so um, can you briefly describe? So I think you were involved in establishing uh, CC, Chese. Um, so can you briefly describe what that, what that was, what that is, and uh, why it was set up? Yes, uh, look, it was an idea that, that my manager at the time and I had kind of bounced around for a long time. And then there was a, a circumstance where all the conditions were suddenly right. Um, Gonski funding arrived 
we had a minister in New South Wales who um, recognised that it was great to have this big new money coming in and he could he could really do things with that. He could implement reform and, and see change, um, but his preference would be to be able to document that impact and be able to, you know, turn around at the end of a bucket of money being spent and say, well, look, see, we thought we were going to improve this and now we know we did and therefore Commonwealth Government, you should keep those dollars flowing. Because... What, what a revolutionary idea. Like, not yeah. only are we going to spend some money <laughs> and implement something, but... We're then going to check whether that had any effect. Yes, exactly. Look, and you know, credit to him. He, we put this proposal to him. Um, we, we craftily also put it to Treasury. <laughs> so uh, we, we made sure that um, the possibility of being able to uh, put a dollar amount against the money spent and the impact achieved, etc. All of it came together at the right time because there was this new money available and opportunity to really do some new things and an appetite for knowing whether or not they would. So CZ was kind of uh, framed in those terms. It was given um, uh, three different missions, really. One was get the, de the department's data house in order. We, we had a data warehouse, but and I always conceive of the data warehouse as something very literal where, you know, there's pallets in a pile over there and, and things falling off shelves and it was a bit like that it it wasn't um wasn't designed for best use shall we say so yeah. CZ took on the task of reworking the data warehouse reconceiving who should have access and how you know data management basic data management information management um, and looking at how we can start to treat the data as an asset so how do we use data that we have, you know, in massive quantities in departments of education, to actually give us insight into how we can improve what we're doing. So we developed a big business intelligence program, and Scout, which is the platform used in New South Wales schools now, was built off the back of that. So that was really important. That was getting the raw material into place. The next bit was the, the evidence-based uh, research, um, looking particularly into most effective teaching practices, but also looking at uh, evaluations, you know, the whole um, research and evaluation work stream, basically generating new insights and information. And then the third bit was about capability building, it was about recognising that teachers largely um, don't feel very confident about using data. They don't know what to make of research and evidence, even when they can find it. They, they don't know how to filter for quality. Um, they don't understand how to take an evaluative mindset to their own practice. Um, and particularly, that's an issue for school leaders who are charged with driving a school improvement agenda. So you want to you be reassured they've got an idea about how to set that up. You know, if they're going to make a decision to do something or invest in something or transform something you know how are you going to make the decision about the way to do it and um, what to choose and how will you know if it's worked so we had this agenda that was about really building capability of our people as well um, and the first thing well it wasn't the first thing there, there are a bunch of things that we kind of got cracking with one was at the request of the minister because he had a policy agenda where he wanted to give more money to primary schools for more release from face-to-face -face teaching time. 
but he wanted to not just you know pour more money in where uh, you know significant money had already just gone on the back of the Gonski funding formula. He wanted to strongly suggest that there were things that teachers could do with their release from face-to-face -face teaching time that might improve their practice. And so he commissioned what became the What Works Best document. He yeah. said, tell me, yeah. what is, what's the most robust evidence base for the best possible practices? Um, and we did that piece of work and it landed really well and it's since been refreshed and we've also generated a bunch of other products off the back of it about leading staff room meetings and evaluating your own practice and all sorts of things. But, um, you know, at one point someone came back and said, uh, when, when are you going to do a new one of those what works best things? And, and I had to say, look, they still work. <laughs> the, the, evidence, the evidence itself hasn't changed that yeah. much. You know, we'll, we'll continue to look for promising yeah. practices, but the, these ones aren't going to be the ones we don't do anymore because yeah. you're tired of hearing about them. They're still the what works best things, right? which has become a challenge in this new role, but we can talk about that. If you're enjoying this podcast, then please consider leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It will help people find the show. Please also share a link on social media. You can find the Filling the Pale blog at fillingthepale.substack.com and the archives at gregashman.wordpress.com. If you like what you see there, please also share on social media. <laughs> yeah, well, look, I, I, um, I was being a bit facetious earlier, but look, I was getting to... A point that, like in education, a lot of people see it just about expenditure. So they say, well, we've got to spend more money here. And I'm very uh, toey about that because I taught in uh, uh, England throughout the uh, Blair years, from 97 when I started my teaching career uh, to 2010 uh, when I left England for Australia. That was basically the whole of the Blair Brown government. And during that time, there was a massive investment in, in education, huge um, I, I, I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but it was huge and significant. But then if you look at P's results, Tim result, Tim's results, things like that, international benchmarks, basically the dial didn't shift at all. So you can spend money in education and not really do anything, um, not, not do anything at least that shows up um, on any of the kind of outcomes on literacy or maths or science that we might think are important. Although some people might challenge that, I don't know. and. So, but yeah, a lot of people, there's not a culture of A, looking, when you're looking to spend the money, looking at what's likely to be effective by saying, well, this is what the research says. So we'd probably be better off investing in program A rather than program B because of the research. And then also at the end, when you've done your investment and you've, and it's run for six months or 12 months or whatever, actually doing some kind of evaluation and it's not a randomized control trial i get that but like did uh reading scores improve you know like because if they didn't then maybe that this um intervention is not what we thought it would be and so i suppose uh, the the idea of of cease coming along to do that on, on the one hand it might seem obvious <laughs> um, and what they would do say in the medical professional or, or elsewhere but on the other hand it's actually quite revolutionary for the education mm. sector I mean I don't know what whether you've got any thoughts on that yeah uh, look uh, I, a bit like my caveat around NAPLAN I would never say that education doesn't need as much money as it can get absolutely yes yeah. <laughs> we absolutely do but i also agree with you that it is possible to spend vast sums and and not 
gain the improvement that you expect it to. Um, having said that, it was also, I suspect we disappointed Treasury in that it is really hard in education to do a proper return on investment kind of evaluation because yeah. we we don't collect the right data, that we don't yeah. have the right systems in place to follow the dollars. Um, yeah. And that, that became a real problem for us. So we ended up, um, and for other reasons, when we did the reading recovery evaluation, we, we turned the formula inside out and said, okay, there's a lot of money being spent on that thing. Yeah. Can we now look at the data that we have and see whether or not uh, it, it, it's had any kind of impact or outcome um, rather than saying, here's a new thing, let's put it in place and we'll decide on the basis yeah. of the outcome whether or not it was worthwhile investment. Um, and, of course, with reading recovery, we discovered that it wasn't delivering at all <laughs> effectively. No, it was delivering for a very small number of the students going through it for a very short period. Um, you know, but for some students, they were worse off doing yeah. the program that this large amount of money was being spent on. So, you know, it, it's a it's a, a useful theory and we will get better at it, but uh, we're always hostage to the, the data that is available um, when we're doing this kind of investigation. Because reading recovery is one of those things that uh, has been like it. It's for those that are listening that aren't familiar with reading recovery. It's a one on one tutoring program. So that's immediately makes it expensive because you've got to have one tutor with one student working together. And there's arguments over how well it aligns with. Uh, the science of reading and things like that. And if you want to go on the internet and Google it, you can you can find those arguments fairly quickly. But your approach was uh, to just look at the impact of this quite expensive program on uh, outcomes in New South Wales. And really that ultimately trumps these philosophical debates as to, you know, it, exactly the, what the content of the program is and whether it aligns with this or that, because you found that the, there wasn't really this effect that was justifying that kind of expenditure. And it probably led, uh, I think it's fair to say, to the decline of um, reading recovery as an intervention in Australia. I don't know whether you think that's fair, but I think it was part of that process. Um, the other thing that um, really stands out, so that was, for me, uh, the reading recovery report was a key uh, um, CC uh development that was that that really sticks in my mind and the other thing of course because um i am a doing a phd in the field of cognitive load theory um i, I was particularly struck when uh, cc released a report on cognitive load theory initially one report which is great um because i was always looking for resources to share with people that were in teacher-friendly language about cognitive load theory because a lot of it can be a bit dense um, but also then you followed that up with a series of other resources, a PowerPoint. Um, if people Google CC and cognitive load theory, you can see all of these. PowerPoint talking about how to display information, cognitive load theory in practice, some of the things that you could, um, I'm not sure if that's what it's called, but basically that's the, what the guide was. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about um, why uh, you decided to, your team decided to look at cognitive load theory um, and, and how that all came about? Uh, look, it was a, a bit of a byproduct from doing the What Works Best document, actually, because in the, the course of doing the investigation for what are the most robust evidence-based practices to include there, 
we kept coming up against cognitive load theory and reading about it. And as you say, so much of what's written about it is really dense and quite <laughs> difficult. Um, and we we just didn't have the time available to unpack it sufficiently and, and have the confidence in installing it in that document for that purpose. But we came back to it immediately afterwards. And I realised, um, you know, John Sweller's at the University of New South Wales. I used yeah. to be at the University of New South Wales. Maybe I can make a call. And, of course, he's a completely delightful individual we we did our best go at at the first version of the cognitive load paper um and he came in and met with us i sent it to him he read it he came in and met with us um and we were a bit nervous because <laughs> we thought we might have completely bastardized his incredibly brilliant work and he was so delighted he said this is what it's needed this is this is the accessible kind of teacher friendly description that I haven't been able to create. So he was so gracious about it and enthusiastic. Um, so we put it out there and we did a lot of talking about it. It was a bit of a slow burn. Um, it didn't take off instantly and there are still people coming to it. Um, and I, I need to acknowledge the incredible CZ team. I'm seldom the one wielding the pen. I'm the one saying, yes, that's a brilliant idea. Please go and do that. And I will bathe in your reflected glory. They're you know, terrific researchers, writers, policy minds that, that work in that place. Um, it, it, it actually started to take off internationally. We got a lot of hits on the website from people in other countries. Um, and then it, it kind of got picked up and, and disseminated through the social media channels as they do. But the CZ process for publication has always been, um, don't make it hard for the teachers. They are busy enough. Uh, we'll be grateful for everyone who comes to us and finds something interesting, but we'll do our best to make it interesting and accessible and consumable and actionable. So we turned everything we did into audio books, um, practice guides, PowerPoints, as you say. Um, we, we've tried very often to break things down into, if you're a science teacher of year eight, then you could think about it like this and kind of yeah. uh, make yeah. it relevant to context and the, the particular immediate challenge that a practitioner might have, rather than expect them to do the work of trying to figure out, well, how on earth am, am I going to uh, adopt that into my practice? Um, and that that is actually a challenge in this new role that I'm continuing to wrestle with. It doesn't matter how great your evidence and your research might be or how beautifully published and designed it is, unless teachers make a decision to do something different in their practice, you're not going to improve any student outcomes. They have to be motivated and have the opportunity and the inclination and disposition and the time to do something with yeah. it. it. It's all in the hands of the teachers, ultimately. So rocking up to one day PD on cognitive load theory is not going to fix anything. It's got to be something that they take on board themselves, I suppose. Um, one of the things that I liked about uh, the paper, which I thought gave it a bit of um, integrity, a bit of intellectual honesty, was the, the, the limitations, the fact that uh, the, it discussed some of the limitations of, or some of the, I can't, 
quite remember how it was phrased, but some of the debates around cognitive load theory, because cognitive load theory does have a controversial edge to it. There's, whenever I talk about it, there's a, a group of people on Twitter that want to um, point out what they think of the flaws in the theory. And of course, it's a, it's a theory that is still under development. It's not finished. Um, and I'm sure the final version of it will look probably quite different to the current version does. And so it's yeah. worth acknowledging those things. Um, yeah. And um, I thought that was particularly strong. And the other thing um, that CC um, produced or commissioned, I think, is probably the better way of putting it. What it was CC, wasn't it? It was the Willingham uh, paper on critical thinking. So again, these are really great resources. You say you've had hits from all over the world, but that's because there are very few resources like this that explain these key ideas in a way that teachers can um, grapple with. And I certainly link to them a lot when I'm trying mm. to um, show people what, what, the, what the different theories and the different ideas say. And the Willingham paper is another one. How did that, did you, how did that one come about? We actually didn't commission that one. No. It was, um, although we often get credited with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the manager I described earlier, um, Leslie Lobel, uh, commissioned that through another project she had called the Catalyst Lab, which yeah. was all about um, trying to wrestle with the enthusiasm for being future focused in education. Yeah. You know, what, what is it that we could sensibly pursue and what might waste everybody's time? Um, and so Dan Willingham was commissioned to do that. Um, at the same time as we were also talking to Dan Willingham about doing another piece of work, so it all just came together and everybody yeah. assumed it was all ours. Um, but uh, again, a, a really gracious person with a powerful brain, keen to find any opportunity to share, you know, smart thinking um, and, and do what they can to save teachers from themselves. You know, teachers, uh, more, more than many other professional areas, are so prone to pursuing fads um, and, you know, the... The general capabilities, while the the idea that there are general capabilities that you cultivate, etc., um, people have pursued that to an extent that I worry about if they think that it's a good idea to teach critical thinking as a standalone thing, completely divorced from curriculum and disciplines, then there's an opportunity cost to that. That That is a waste of students' learning time when they could be doing other things. So if you can think about critical thinking as being an aspect of the teaching and learning that's happening within your subject area, within the context of the curriculum topic that you're currently on, that will be much more constructive than trying to carve out precious time to do something that will, will never land the way you think it might, you know? Yeah. There well, some it, other no. no, no, I was going to say it, it, it's quite a difficult initially. So a lot of people think, well, critical thinking is, is something that we can develop by designing activities that get kids to think critically. And then you think, well, no, that doesn't work. And then you almost react against the concept, the entire concept of critical thinking. But of course, critical thinking does exist. Um, but it is context dependent. You know, any good argumentative essay about a novel is an excellent example of critical thinking. Any um, scientific report is a good example of critical thinking. It's just the two things do not necessarily feed into each other. And the subtlety of that is something that I think Willingham in that report actually gets across quite well. Yeah, it's beautifully done, isn't it? I agree. So now you're with the Australian Education Research Organisation. Do we call it AERO? Like yes, the chocolate? we do, because 
Chocobar, yeah, we're not full of bubbles with nothing, but <laughs> a, a chocobar, who what's not to like about a chocolate bar? Could be what's not to, you know, a holly waffle or a chiquito or something. Yes. Good. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, an aero. Okay, so we call it we're calling it aero. That's great. So um can you describe aero? What is it? And is it basically like a national CC? Uh, to an extent, yes. Um, it, it arose from the second Gonski panel, which, you know, went around the country looking for good ideas to achieve excellence in educational achievement um, and looked at CESI and said, this is a good idea. Um, wouldn't it be great if we had a national evidence institute and this would be a, a resource available to everybody. Um, of course, CESI's resources are available to everybody. Yeah. They're all freely published on the website, but you know, um, there's appetite for a national view of things sometimes, and that's not a bad thing. Um, Aero doesn't have the as broad a remit as CESI because we're not going to be building anybody's business intelligence machinery, and we're not going to be delivering professional learning directly. Um, we're very small. Um, at the moment, the budget is about a quarter of the size of the budget that I had in New South Wales yep. in CESI. Um, and, you know, there, there's opportunity to grow. Uh, we're, we're being set up in such a way that we can attract philanthropic funding potentially in the fullness of time. Um, the main the main driver is improving student learning outcomes. Uh, we've kind of adopted a little bit of the vision that is the Alice Springs Mabuntwa Declaration about equity and excellence for all Australian children and young people. But our particular spin is on improving learning outcomes through the use of evidence-based practices. And we've identified three particular areas to work in. And one is actually doing research and doing evaluation. It is still adding to the evidence pool that we have available to us. There's, there's more to know, there's more work to be done. There are gaps in the existing evidence base um, and the, the discipline of evaluating what we do is a good one to maintain anyway. So we do see work for ourselves to do there, whether we do it ourselves or commission it or partner with institutions, jurisdictions, whatever. Um, the second bit is about the, the kind of what people are most familiar with CZ doing, that translation piece, making good resources available to teachers, um, synthesizing evidence that exists into consumable products, uh, then chunking them down into the staff meeting guides and practice guides. All of that stuff that people associate with CZ will be part of what we do in Aero as well. Um, and the third part is kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, that uh, nothing will change unless people use the evidence in their practice. Um, so there's a whole work stream that's dedicated to really understanding much better what, what is the current environment? What's happening inside classrooms at the moment? We've had what works best for eight years. Are teachers using those practices in classrooms? People don't know. Uh, and there's you know, no systematic attempt to gather that yeah. kind of insight. The, big, the, the classroom is the black box. And we've got an opportunity because we're not their employers. And we, we, we're just interested in, in research opportunities here of getting inside classrooms and finding out what's happening, what is informing the practice, what is getting in the way of teachers using more evidence-informed practices, what are they interested in, how do they want to access and consume information, 
what are the decision points that might make them more predisposed to use a new idea? You know, is it all about just not having enough time and being overburdened by the sense that they've all got to write their own curriculum and design their own assessments and, um, you know, collect data every second of the day? It, it, it's that third area that I think is the real point of distinction for Aero because unless we understand that better and start to put in place the, the things that will affect people, the practitioners' willingness to change what they're doing, then we're not going to see any change in the learning that's happening. People need to be interested in, in improvement um, and they need to trust and be prepared to work with what we can offer. That's that's really exciting. So some of the things you said, um, it, it sounds like almost that you're signalling a renaissance of process product research, which would be great because that's, I don't know why we stopped doing that. Um, we still sort of have it in the form of PISA and TIMS and all that, but looking at what happens in the classroom and doing correlational studies to see how that relates to student gain. Do you have much access to data or would that be something that you would be collecting you know, in like as part of these projects? Um, we, we will have. So part of what we've been doing, there's been this prolonged period of establishment while we've been waiting for everybody to sign the necessary paperwork and uh, yeah. create the, the corporation. Um, but part of that has been negotiating access to relevant data sets, identifying um, measures that we would like to have, you know, data that doesn't exist because yeah. we don't collect because we don't have a good measure at the moment. Um, in, in setting up this agency, there's the implied expectation from ministers that we're going to want to work with the data. So there's nobody sort of, nobody who is a data custodian at the moment saying, you can't have that or yeah. we're not letting you look at that or anything. Everybody appropriately has their processes for making sure that the data is managed well. Um, but yes, we, we would expect to access most of the, the data sets that you've described. And just that, just you reminded me then the PISA, one of the more interesting PISA data sets to my mind is the student survey that they conduct, uh, you know, at the back end of you do your PISA test yep. and then you do a questionnaire. Um, and in fact, the very first piece of work that CESI published was based on um, analysis of the New South Wales students who'd done PISA and their survey data. And we did a correlation between what the students had said about their uh, the teaching practices they were exposed to, you know, their own perceptions about how the classroom was managed, how much time was spent on uh, learning. Um, could they ask questions? Did the teacher explain what they were going to be doing? Those sorts of things. And we correlated them um, to their we were able to figure out the student and the PISA result um, and have a really interesting insight into the practices most associated with high performance and practices more associated with lower performance. And then we disaggregated that by SES and found that students um, in high SES areas are more likely to be exposed to the highly effective teaching practices mm and students in low SES areas are less likely to be exposed to the highly effective teaching practices. So it was an insight really that was derived from what students were telling us that we hadn't known about before. And what were some um, of the, the highly effective teaching practices? 
Well, they they were the things like um, there's a the class starts on time. Yeah. The teacher explains what the point of the lesson is going to be. The yeah. teacher responds to questions. You know, explicit, effective, yeah. explicit teaching practices, basically, and effective classroom management so that the environment is conducive to learning. Um, and and it was just you know there were a few other interesting things like. Um, uh, results for students, uh, year four students using calculators were poorer than results for year four students who didn't use calculators mm. when they got, you know, there are all sorts of insights that you can get from some of that other data that doesn't get written up on the front page of the newspapers whenever a new round of PISA results gets handed down. But it's really useful in terms of thinking about effective practice. Well, that's really that is really interesting, and um, if Aero is going to generate more of that sort of evidence, and that would be really helpful in terms of uh, the 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 more kind of high profile things. Are, are you planning on running like randomized control trials, that sort of thing, or partnering with people to do it? Is that part of the plan? Yep, absolutely. One of our own measures of our own success, or you know. Uh, impact will be, we're not going to be able to draw a line between aero established and on top of the world of the PISA rankings, you know, yeah. in three years or or even 10 years as the minister might like. Um, but we can measure things like uh, what proportion of our research projects are RCTs. Um, yeah. we, can, we expect to hold ourselves to account and to a high standard uh, as, uh, you know, in the same way that we would hold other researchers and research organisations, and you know, we do sit in judgment about some of the <laughs> stuff that we look at and and read from other places. Well, I hope you, uh, I hope you learn some of the lessons of uh, the Education Endowment Foundation in the UK. And uh, if you want my thoughts on what some of those lessons might be, I can be very forthcoming on them. Um, so I would be happy to share. But anyway, um, that's great. Look. Um, I always like to ask my final guests, um, I don't think anyone I interview is completely satisfied with the state of uh, things as they are. I, don't, I think that's quite normal. I don't think we'd be doing this job or, or making these podcasts or whatever we're doing if we thought everything was absolutely brilliant and we just needed to carry on doing it. So um, what are your thoughts on how we can get a more evidence-informed approach into all of our schools? Obviously, this is quite informed when it comes when I'm asking you this question because you've been trying to do this for um, a long time in various roles and capacities. So you've got some ideas about um, what things land and impact teachers and classrooms and what's just so much fluff and discussion that never goes anywhere. So what, what do you think are the best ways to get evidence-informed approaches into classrooms? Um, I guess the first thing I'd say is I, I don't think Aero can do that on its own. I no. don't think... And, you know, we've got a very beautiful looking website, but on its own, all that's going to attract is highly motivated people who come hunting for us. We, we are going to have to uh, anticipate close partnerships with the jurisdictions and the sectors and the professional associations and the, you know, the trusted authorities in education. We need them to understand what it is we're talking about and promoting and be willing to disseminate it through their existing channels and processes. Um, you know, I'm not the one who can say to teachers, you know, that pupil free day that you have at the beginning of term two, well, you need to spend half a day on this 
here's mm. the materials um, and all of your teachers ought to be doing it and then you know you should revisit it in your next three staff meetings but the head of the New South Wales Department of Education can absolutely do that so you know I, I think we need to uh, get runs on the board in terms of our credibility our rigor our trustworthiness um, and then we need to sell that to those people who do have those levers available to them um, and there was something else I was going to say and now I've completely forgotten what it was um, oh, I know. I I really do believe that all teachers would like to improve. You know, nobody. I I don't. No teachers are in there to do harm. You know, some teachers are working really hard just to get through the day, and I remember that it was bloody hard sometimes and often. Um, and I think our expectations of teachers at the moment are, are disingenuous and. Uh, completely creating a, a workload and perception of burden that is unnecessary. Um, we could be honest with them about, you know, you, you cannot personalise for all your students in every lesson on every occasion. It can't be done. It yeah. just, it doesn't work. You know, yeah. differentiation, that's got to be treated, you know, really carefully too, yeah. or else you will continually feel like you're failing because yeah. you, you just can't do it to the nth degree. So I think we need to acknowledge that teachers want to be better. They're knocking themselves out to do the impossible. If we could be straight with them about what they could do and offer some clear and honest advice about, you know, what, what might be a more effective way than what they're doing at the moment, um, I think they would be willing to embrace it, but that would mean listening to them about what their problems are. What what do they want solved rather than us shouting from the heights about you should do better. We know better than you. We've got the answers. Just do what we tell you. It, it's got to come from them, that point where they're willing to engage and willing to try something different, whether they've been driven to it by desperation, who knows. Um, but we've got to carve out the kind of mental headspace and, and take away some of their unrealistic expectations to enable them to, to come to that point and try something different. There needs to be a more teacher-led process, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Look, yeah, it's been absolutely... Absolute it's been absolutely great chatting to you. I, we could probably go on for another hour. At some point, I might ask you to come on again um, if, that, if you're happy to do that. Um, thank you very much, Jenny Donovan. Thank you. Happy birthday. <laughs> Cheers.